Amen. Let's remain standing now for our scripture reading this morning. It comes from Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Amen. Let's be seated together. Please pray with me. Holy Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we want to hear your voice speak to us this morning. We want to know your presence is near us. We want our hearts to be transformed. Jesus, we want our lives to look more like you. Help us hear with faith. Open our ears to what it is you want to speak to us. May your word, may it be the double-edged sword that it is, dividing thoughts, cutting to the quick. And pray this knowing that you are God who hears and you answer. In your holy name we pray. Amen. In the last few decades, there's a whole new industry that's come up called kind of the Christian book publishing industry. There's always been Christian books, but in terms of being an industry that is like its own self-enclosed industry where books are written for, marketed to, published for explicitly Christians, it's kind of a new thing in the 70s and 80s. Um, and it's interesting to look at, okay, so with this whole new industry of, 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 of Christian books, what have been the most popular Christian books in this industry in the last few decades? So I have a couple here. You've probably heard of most of these. Um, and, uh, and let's just be clear, these are not necessarily Christian books, although they are written for Christian audiences. That's just my qualification. But, so the first book, Your Best Life Now, Seven Steps to Living at Your Full Potential by Joel Osteen, written in 2004, has sold over 8 million copies. Um, and by the way, these numbers are, like, it's hard to find how much how many books uh, or how many copies a book has sold unless you like contact the publisher uh, and they don't typically release that. So a lot of this is stuff I found on the internet but I was able to kind of cross, uh, cross check them so I think these numbers are accurate. Sec second, The Five Love Languages. I feel like that's the book that we all know what they are even though we haven't read it. But anyways, The Five Love Languages, The Secret to Love That Lasts by Gary Chapman written in 1995 has sold over 10 million copies. The Prayer of Jabez, Breaking Through to the Blessed Life by Bruce Wilkinson, written in 2000, has sold over 10 million copies. And of course, The Big uh, Kahuna, A Purpose Driven Life, written in 2002, has sold over 30 million copies. And that's a little bit of a cheater, though, because they were somehow managed to get like thousands of churches to buy these books for every member in their church. So that's, that's a little bit probably of an inflated number. But to give you like a, a metric to measure this against, I'm going to mention maybe two books that might be a little bit more popular with some of our crowd. Knowing God by J.I. Packer, Christian classic, supposedly. It's only sold about a million copies. Um, Systematic Theology by Wayne Grudem, written in 1993, has sold a little bit over 750,000 copies. 
These, these top sellers are like big time sellers, selling a lot of books. You gotta ask, okay, why are these books so popular? I mean, in, in an age where like we just don't read as much, but people are reading these books. Like, why are they so popular? And there's there's a lot of reasons. Um, you know, they're well written. They speak to to things we care about. Um, but, but but it's interesting that there is a similarity with all these books. And you kind of keep them up there on the screen behind me if it's possible. We go back to the other ones. When you just look at all of them. They're they're similar in one way in that they are all very optimistic upbeat, I'd say triumphant type books, kind of paint this picture of the Christian life of, of it could be victorious, right? I mean, you know, the five love languages, like if you, if you put this into practice, you will have that ideal marriage you've always wanted. Or, uh, you know, the prayer of Jabez, like there's a secret blessedness. If you just do this, you're going to counter blessedness you, you, you were meant to have, but have never experienced. And then, you know, Joel seems the most just blatant about it, like, you're going to live your best life now. They're very optimistic, very positive. It's interesting, these books all expect something of God. That God wants us to have these things, and, and we're expecting these kind of physical blessings from God. And it's interesting, because it's very similar to the crowds on Palm Sunday. As they're welcoming Jesus into Jerusalem before his death, they also have, they're also expecting something from Jesus. If you go to John 12, the, the, the passage that, that uh, Dan read, as they're welcoming him in, him in they're singing out uh, Psalm 118.26, which actually I misquoted on the screen behind me, so let's just ignore that screen. Um, but it actually, when he, when he quotes that out, sorry, let me turn to John um, 12. They sing out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. They're actually quoting from Psalm 118, verse 26. Well, what are they expecting of this king? Well, we can see that in Psalm 118, verse 25. That one is correct. You can put that one up. Which says, save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. So as, as the crowds are welcoming Jesus, they have an expectation that Jesus is going to be a Messiah who will rule as a king, who's going to free them from the oppression of the Roman Empire. King who's going to issue in, uh, usher in a, a new, you know, national, a time of national prosperity and stability. And that's what they are expecting of Jesus. The only problem is that's not who Jesus was. It's not what he was coming to do. Yes, Jesus was a Messiah. But he was not the Messiah that he or, or we, frankly, expected him to be. And as we'll see next week, he actually turned out to be far more than we'd hoped as well. And so if Jesus is not this kind of political, triumphant, messianic figure, who is he? And Philippians 2, verses 8 to 11, gives us one of the best succinct summaries of who Jesus is, what he came to do. And so we're going to be looking at that passage for the next two weeks. Today we're looking at verses 5 to 8. And then next week on Easter Sunday, we're going to be looking at verses 9 to 11. Um, and especially the contrast today between what we see in Philippians 2 and what the crowds were expecting of Jesus as he comes riding in on a donkey into Jerusalem five days before his crucifixion. So to give you a roadmap, what's really interesting about, about uh, uh, Philippians 2, verses 5 to 11, is that most people think it's, it's, it's probably a creed, a very, very early Christian creed. So kind of how we will recite the Apostles' Creed or statements of faith in this church, that's what this is, the early church summarizing in very succinct form. These are the basics of what we believe. But also what's really interesting about this kind of proto-creed 
uh, that we find is that it's, it's, it's written in kind of a story format, as a, an, a narrative progression. So it gives us a setting, gives us plot twists. So that's what we're going to be doing. We're going to be kind of plotting along the, uh, the, the, the story. And so the first thing we'll look at is the setting of the story, which is the eternal king. And then we're looking at the first plot twist, which is that the eternal king who pours himself out for others. We'll see a second plot twist, which is the eternal king who then became a slave. And the third and final plot twist, which is the eternal king who died as a state criminal. So the first point of our, of our, of our creed slash story is the setting. Go ahead and, and look at verses 5 through the first part of verse 6. Give me a second to flip back to Philippians. So verses 5 through 6. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, so again, a setting in a story, you're finding out who are the characters, what's going on when the story begins. But who's the character in this story is, is Jesus. And what's going on? He was in the form of God. Before he comes to earth and does his earthly ministry, he is in the form of God. What does that mean? It could sound like it's like, you know, we, you know it, it, it could sound like Jesus was just in the appearance of God. It wasn't actually God, he just looked like God. But we know from other parts of Scripture that can't be what it means. So what does it mean? Well, there's some linguistic difficulties in, 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 in the Greek, actually. But we can find out just from looking at contextual clues what's, what this means. First, continue reading in verse 6. So 6 starts, Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, that's the thing we're trying to figure out, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Another way you could read this is say, he did not count his equality with God. The ESV is a very literal translation, so it doesn't try to smooth this out. But literally what he's saying is, look, even though he was in the form of God, did not count his equality with God a thing to be grasped. He's, he's equating those two things. Whatever it means to be he was in the form of God is the same thing as being equal to God. It's hard to see it in the ESV because the ESV is very literal. But that's what it means. But the second clue we see is just go to verse 7. What does it mean to be in the form of something? It says, Jesus emptied himself taking the form of a servant. Does it mean that Jesus just looked like a servant, but he wasn't really a servant? Who's playing? He's a phony. No, he was genuinely a servant. What does it mean that he was in the form of a servant? It means that he was characterized by what was essential about being a servant. Whatever the kind of essential characteristics of a servant, that's what characterized Jesus. Let's backtrack. What does it mean to say that he was in the form of God? Whatever is essential about God, that is what characterized Jesus. To say he was in the form of God means that Jesus was essentially God. He's of the same essence as God. This is going to get a little bit abstract, but this is really important because this is about who the God is that we worship. Why didn't Paul just say, though he was God, did not consider equality with God to be grasped? That'd be a lot simpler. Wouldn't have to figure out what it means to be in the Why did he say he was in the form of God? And this is where you got to stay with me. This is really important. Because we don't worship a Unitarian God. We worship a Trinitarian God. We don't worship Allah. Allah is a Unitarian God. We worship a Trinitarian, a God who is one God but exists in three persons. What does that mean? That means that Jesus is God, Father is God, Holy Spirit is God, 
But Jesus is not the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is not the Father. And the Father is not the Son. And so what Paul's telling us is that Jesus is just as much God as the Father is. So when it typically uses the word God in the New Testament, it's referring to God the Father. So he says that Jesus was in the form of God. He's saying Jesus was of the same essence as God the Father. This blew the church apart in the first two centuries fighting over this. Who is Jesus? When we look at the fights that are going on in the SBC right now, they are small potatoes compared to the fights over the nature of Christ's divinity. And eventually the church came to a, an agreement, a consensus in the Nicene Creed, where they said this, they said, We believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, who is God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of the same essence as the Father. That Jesus is the form of God. He is the same essence as God the Father. Although he is not the Father, they are three persons. And our minds explode when we try to think through that. That's why we should always turn to worship when we can't fully understand but what's the setting? Okay, here's the setting. Here's what's saying. Jesus Christ existed as the eternal king from all time in glory and splendor on his throne. That's where this story starts. That's where he is. He is the eternal king. Now, what's the first plot twist we come to in our story? It's that the, this is an eternal king, the eternal king, who poured himself out. Look at the second half of verse 6 into 7. Again, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. First plot, first plot twist, this is up. An eternal king who pours himself out. There's kind of two sides to this first plot twist, which is first that he did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. What does that mean? It means that Christ was willing to give up his divine rights, his right to be honored as king, to be worshipped, his right to, to, to his glorious presence. He was willing to give that up. He did not consider it something to be grasped, to be held on to. He was willing to give it up. He's also willing to empty himself. Again, there's, oof, there's some like deep controversies in this text. You say he emptied himself. Like He emptied himself of what? Like, did Jesus stop being God? That's not what it means. It's in the same way that when I say, I poured myself out, I'm playing in the soccer game, I just, I gave it my all. We don't say, well, all what? No, it's just, I poured myself out. That's what it means. Jesus emptied himself out in service to others. He emptied himself of anything. It was of his divine right to being glorified and known and worshipped as God as he came as a man. This is not what earthly rulers do. The eternal king pours himself out, but that's not what earthly rulers do. I was a missionary kid in Europe when I was a kid, and uh, one of the cool things about Europe, if you like history, is that there are just like old castles everywhere. It's like someone will have one in their backyard, or I mean, that's a little bit of a hyperbole, but I mean, it's just everywhere. There's like castles that are 800 years old, twice the age of our country, and you can just go see them. They're really cool. And so I remember seeing one uh, castle, I think it was a, a little bit of a newer one, right, like 500 years old. And some king had built this most elaborate garden. It had this incredibly intricate uh, fountain system throughout the whole garden. It was huge. And the fountain system was so elaborate that they, they, they couldn't actually run the whole thing at the same time. They couldn't force enough water through the pipes. And so when the king would walk through his garden, there would be servants stationed 
so that wherever he was looking, they made sure to turn that fountain on, and then like what was behind him would turn off. So they couldn't have them both at the same time. And one time, uh, he, t- he turned away, they weren't thinking, and he walked through a place where there wasn't fountain going, and he had the chief gardener executed uh, for failing at his job. That's what it means to grasp after your rights, right? As a king who existed with unlimited authority and power in that kind of monarchical system, that was, that's what it means to grasp after his rights. He has the right to see water wherever he looks because he is the king. That's an extreme example, but just think about how our presidential system works. The United States president will spend two out of his four years in office campaigning to be reelected, making sure he can remain in power. It's just how earthly rulers work. It's not how our Lord worked, who was the eternal king, but he was willing to pour himself out. You know, there are times when we're given glimpses into God's heart in the Bible. The whole Bible is about God, but there are times when just we get glimpses into the heart of who God is, and we see what, what is most primary. Think about it this way, like, you know, God's wrath. God's wrath exists because of sin, but it's not a primary characteristic. There will be no wrath in heaven. When sin is, away, is done away with, there'll be no more wrath. But here we see something that's primary about God's heart. That he is a God who will leave the 99, who will leave his throne to come after you. To pursue you. Something deep in the heart of God. He's willing to give up his divine rights. Leave his own throne. Pursue you. He is the good shepherd who will leave the 99 to go after the one. A.W. Tozer, he begins this classic work, The Knowledge of the Holy. He says, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. There's a lot of truth to that. We think about God. It changes how we live. Interesting is that C.S. Lewis, who was a contemporary of A.W. Tozer, actually responds to this. You've got to love it when this happens. Almost never happens. But C.S. Lewis says this. He said, I read in a periodical the other day, the fundamental thing is how we think of God. That's he's referring to A.W. Tozer. I think this is the coolest thing. You were like, this is really stupid, Mike. But I think that's just really cool. By God himself, it is not. How God thinks of us is not only more important, but infinitely more important. It is written that we shall stand before him, that we shall appear, shall be inspected. The promise of glory is the promise almost incredible and only possible by the work of Christ that some of us, that any of us who really chooses, shall actually survive that examination, shall find approval, shall please God, to please God, to be a real ingredient in the divine happiness, to be loved by God, not merely pitied, but delighted in as an artist delights in his work. Or Father and His Son, it seems impossible. A weight or burden of glory which our thoughts can hardly sustain. So it is. It is the heart of God that He He not just pities us, He delights in us, and He's willing to leave His throne, all His divine rights. And He can find us because He loves us. God thinks of us as the most important thing. And I tell you what, when that resonates in our souls, it changes everything. It changes why we come to church. Changes why we read our Bible. It changes how we treat our free time. And it really hits us in our hearts. God thinks of us. It changes everything.
The first plot twist is that this is an eternal king who poured himself out. <clears throat> Second plot twist, this is the eternal king who became a slave. Look again at verse 7. Is but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Referring most basically to the incarnation that Jesus came and dwelt among us. He lived among us. He put aside his, his divine rights to glory and he lived as a human. Now there are some common kind of literary tropes out there. You'll see them in various books of like the king who leaves his palace disguised as a commoner to see what it's like to live as a commoner. You see this in Mark Twain's um, The Prince and the Pauper. You see it in uh, the Disney classic Aladdin, right? Where Jasmine leaves the palace and, uh, and, and she's actually trying to run away. But typically, in these literary tropes, eventually the royal person's revealed for who they are. So in Aladdin, what happens? She's with Aladdin, the soldiers come, and then she says, unhand him by order of the princess. Oh, it's the, it's the princess. And, and the glory's revealed. This is nothing like that literary trope. This is it. He came in the form of a servant. That's not a terrible translation, but more literally, it's that he came in the form of a slave. And the reason our Bibles translate it servant is that when we hear slave, we think of the, the, the horrors of the racially based transatlantic slave trade that existed from 1600 to sometime in the 1800s, where white slave traders would go to Africa, abduct and kidnap natives, and then sell them into horrendous living conditions. That's slavery to us, but that's not what slavery looked like in the ancient world. It was an institution that was fairly prevalent. Occasionally, there'd be prisoners of war, right, who were captured, and they would spend their life in slavery. But it could also be like debtor's prison type things. Like, you're in debt, and so you are enslaved for a certain number of years, and so you paid off your debts, and you'd be free. It was not racially based in any way. It was, it was very different. But nonetheless, even though it did not look like, again, the, the, the horrors of the transatlantic slave trade that came much later in history— if you were a slave in the ancient world, you were still not a free person. You still belonged to someone else. And what that meant is that you had no advantages, no rights, no privileges. You were a nobody. It says that Jesus Christ took on the form of a slave. You're probably familiar with the story in John 13. After a meal, Jesus puts aside his cloak, picks up a towel, and begins to wash the feet of his disciples. There are actually denominations that incorporate foot washings into their regular service. And if you've been through one, they're super awkward if you have ticklish feet. This is this very somber moment. You're like <clears throat> giggling the whole time. But if you remember from the story, at one point, Peter says, when Jesus comes to wash his feet, Peter says, you will never wash my feet. And you're like, whoa. I mean, that's kind of a weird, awkward thing to do, but Peter, why are you reacting this way? And the reason Peter says that is because slaves wash feet. And Peter says, there is no way that you will be a slave. Further, I mean, yeah. He couldn't fathom. And here's the thing. Peter didn't know that Jesus was the eternal king. He didn't know that yet. But even the Messiah that he thought he was, he said, there's no way you can be a slave. But the truth is that the eternal king became a slave. Mark 10.45 says that the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is such a contrast with the crowds expected to what oftentimes we want from God. We wanted a 
typical political ruler who would come rule with, you know, aggression and power and inspire people. And here is one who's coming in the form of a slave, a nobody. Second plot twist. This is the eternal king who came as a slave, became a slave. The third and final plot twist is that this is the eternal king who died as a state criminal. Look at verse 8. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. It wasn't enough that Jesus left his throne to pour himself out. It wasn't enough that he came as a slave. He also came to die. But not just die, he came to die on a cross. The cross was the instrument of state execution for the worst crimes, for those who were treasonous, seditious, rebellious, who were dangerous for society. They were the ones who got crucified. You crucified, you were a state criminal. And the shame that came with being a state criminal, that is what our Lord took on himself when he died on a cross. I watched a, a documentary on Lee Harvey Oswald. He was the man who assassinated John F. Kennedy in uh, 1963. It was a, I mean, it, for any who were alive at that time and remember, it was like the 9-11 moment for that generation. I mean, you remember where you were. My mom was seven, and she remembers her mom, my grandma, got a phone call. Right, This is before the Internet, so people would find out through phone calls. And my grandma begins to cry on the phone when she heard that John F. Kennedy had been shot and killed. He was a beloved president. So Lee Harvey Oswald was hated. And in fact, he ended up being murdered himself in retaliation only a few days later. What was interesting about this documentary is that they they interviewed the brother of Lee Harvey Oswald. As we hear the story of Lee Harvey Oswald, he assassinates the president, then he's killed. End of the story. But he still had to be buried and so his brother tells a story of how they, they, they couldn't find a cemetery because there wasn't a cemetery that wanted Lee Harvey Oswald interred in their premises. They finally found one. They couldn't find a pastor who would officiate the funeral. And at the funeral itself, again, there's so much shame associated with Lee Harvey Oswald and what he did as a state criminal. The only people who came were his mother and his brother. And so the press corps had to stand in as pallbearers. That's the shame that Jesus took on when he died as a state criminal. Have you ever asked yourself, like, why are the soldiers so mean to Jesus? Like, the religious leaders, yeah, they hated Jesus. He was their competition. Some of them probably legitimately believed he was was blasphemous. We understand why they hated him. But the soldiers, like, this is, you don't know who this guy is. Why are you beating him and spitting on him and mocking him? Because they saw him as a state criminal. They saw him the same way that someone would see Lee Harvey Oswald. They treated him like that. Until there was evidence for the contrary. For the earthquake and the centurion says, truly this man was a son of God. But up to that point, they just saw him as a state criminal. What a contrast between what the crowds expected, we expected, who Jesus came to be. That though he was the eternal king, he did not come to rule and to conquer, but he gave up his divine rights to come as a slave, to die as a state criminal. This is the Lord of life. The one who I am, who spoke into existence all that is. He's the one who's coming to die as a state criminal, to bleed out as people mock him. 
And this is what our sin required. You know, if sin was a matter of degrees, it was just a matter of tweaking things here and there in us, maybe Jesus could have just, you know, poured himself out and it would have been enough. Or maybe he could have come as a slave and by his example we would be healed. But because the extent of our sin is so great, the Lord of life had to come and die as a criminal. That was the only way our sin could be atoned for. But here's a really amazing thing, guys. Here's a truly amazing thing. Though our sin is, is deep and profound and pervasive, he who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, and he did that for you. that for you. On your worst day, on your worst moment, the moments you wish you could forget, did that for you. Left his throne, he suffered and he died to bring us back to himself. You know, following Jesus, it may not necessarily lead to our best life. (laughs) May not necessarily lead to our ideal marriage or to marriage at all. May not lead to unlocking secret levels of blessedness. But this is what it will mean. It will mean that we are known and we are loved by the God of the universe. It means that we will be known truly, not us on Sundays, but us throughout our lives. All that we've done will be known and we will be fiercely loved by the King of glory who is willing to lay aside his divine rights and come to us pour himself out and become a slave and die on a cross did that for us. And all of that, he proved and he vindicated when he died on a cross. Three days later, he rose again from the grave. That is our hope. Let's pray. Jesus, we're we're just in awe of who you are. We do not deserve to kiss your feet. We don't deserve to walk the wash, the floor you walk on, and yet you came to us and you searched us out. You laid aside your divine rights and you lived a life of a servant and you eventually died as a state criminal all so that we might know you. God, as we prepare to celebrate your resurrection next Sunday, may we reflect on these truths May they burn in our bones. May they burn in our souls. You are the king. We offer you all our lives. In your name we pray. Amen.